0: You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com
1: TopCast. Tonight in TopCast, I'd like to welcome a gentleman that started out working in pinball for Atari and then moved over to Williams, designing games from The Sorcerer, Road Kings, Big Guns, Taxi, Police Force, Diner, Slugfest, Fishtails, and of course, Indiana Jones. And then after Williams, he moved over to Capcom and was head of the engineering department and also designed Kingpin. Special Guests.
2: Special Guests. Special Guests. Special Guests.
1: I'd like to welcome Mark Ritchie to TopCast tonight. You've probably heard of that last name before, Ritchie. Uh, he does have a brother that's involved in the gaming industry also, but Mark has done some great designs for for Williams and also uh, did some uh, pinball design at Capcom. And we're going to give him a call right now and uh, talk to him tonight. Mark talk to Mark Ritchie about his uh, his pinball work for Atari, Williams, and Capcom. Hello. Mark? Yes. It's Clay. How you doing?
0: Hey Clay, how are you? I'm doing good.
1: Am I on time?
0: You're right on time. So, you ready? I'm ready when you are.
1: Okay. So, tell me about your uh, your first memories of pinball and, and and you know what you remember when you know you first started playing if it was when you were a kid or in college or whatever.
0: Well, uh my earliest memory was actually, um when I was a really small kid, maybe Four or five years old. We used to have a summer home up near the Russian River in California. And, uh, well my, I should say my uncle had one. And, uh, um, we would go up there and spend, you know, a week, two weeks up there to crack. And we'd go to this little miniature golf course that had, like, a bunch of old wood rail pinballs. And I couldn't tell you which one, but I can remember being just tall enough to see over the, over the hand protector. And, uh, and, you know, flipping the flippers and pushing the game around. And so that was my first memory. That's not real exciting, but. <laughs> it is what it is
1: is now was this a, a family adventure
0: yeah absolutely
1: and how many brothers do you have
0: one brother and one sister okay
1: and obviously your brother's into pinball is your sister into pinball
0: no she's not couldn't be further away <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> okay so now how did you uh now how did you translate this into getting involved in the pinball industry
0: well, uh, actually, both events are completely disconnected, unconnected, I should say. Um, you know, it came a lot later in life. And um, I was just getting out of high school and I was, I think, flipping burgers at a restaurant or something. And uh, my brother got this really cool job at Atari. And, you know, I had been playing games and stuff all along. But, you know, mostly novelty games. We didn't have a lot of pinball where I grew up. We had video games and stuff like that. And um spent a lot of time doing that. And I thought, wow, this would be really cool. So I started bothering him and basically asked them if they were going to have any openings. I was about to be out of high school. and He says, well, it's possible, but Atari has a policy. They don't hire family. The immediate family is not allowed. You can't work in the same department, whatever. So I thought, ah, that's not going to bother me. So I went and applied uh, as soon as I finished high school. And uh, lo and behold, they hired me, and I started working in the Santa Clara facility uh, assembling video games. So I started there, and... Um, about that time maybe a year or two after that um my brother had moved up into pinball so he was working in engineering at that time and i wanted to get in there real bad of course i thought that was really interesting that'd be something i could could do and do pretty well so i started hammering people around there for that and of course i got the same story no you can't have you know direct family working in the same department why i don't know um but um So what I did was I was able to land a job in building maintenance with Atari. At that time, they had a little empire going in Sunnyvale. They had probably between 10 and 12 buildings, and they would settle around between the buildings and do various you know, tasks, uh, installing airlines, uh, electrical work, whatever needed to be done, mostly keeping the assembly lines rolling. They were somewhat automated in those days, so there was a lot of maintenance work to do. But... uh, Got one job in particular in the Pinball Engineering Building where they wanted me to drop put some airdrops in there. They wanted 15 airlines for their technicians and stuff so they could do, you know, sort of mock uh, prototype assembly in there. So I got the job. I went over there and I, you know, laid out the pipe and got everything in. And the boss of the apartment, a guy by the name of Charlie Barnett at that time, uh, he says to me, he says, "Uh, is this what you want to do? He says, I know your brother, and you know. Uh, let me see what I can do. I'll uh, see if I can get you in here. And I, I, I'm like, when? You know? <laughs> so, um, so about that time, that was maybe a year and a half into it, Steve had made the switch over to Williams. So when he was out of, cleared out of the uh, Atari, uh, once he left Atari, they, uh, they hired me in, um, to work on prototype, you know, doing engin- working for the engineers and game designers, assembling play fields, and, and that sort of thing.
1: Now, what's the what's the age difference between you and Steve?
0: Uh, eight years. Oh, okay.
1: And he's uh, he's older than you, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh yeah, he's much older than me. <laughs> Steve is much older.
1: <laughs> and not as wise, though, right?
0: I don't know about that. I can't say that.
1: <laughs>
0: can't say that and get away with it.
1: <laughs> now, how long did you stay at Atari?
0: Uh, it was there a total of three and a half years. Okay.
1: And then, and how did you get from Atari to Williams?
0: Um, I met a gentleman by the name of Mike Stroll, who my brother obviously knew very well. He hired my brother. And he was out here on a, on some sort of a, I think it was a distributor show or something. He was out here on business. And my brother called me up one afternoon and says, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I don't know, nothing. And he says, why don't you meet us over at this hotel in Las Gatas? And, uh, you know, Put a decent shirt on. Make yourself look decent. You're going to meet the president of Williams. I said you're kidding me, and he says no. So okay. So later on that night, I get over there and I meet him. And before I knew it, I had a job that uh, if I wanted, I could double my salary, and I was to start within uh, within about a month of, the, of that day at Williams. Hmm.
1: This is
0: 1979.
1: So how did you make this transition in '79? To working at Williams, and then it seemed like around 82 you actually started designing games, right?
0: Right. Well, when I hired on at Williams, I came in. At that time, I was a a lab tech, so I was working with the designer, so I pretty much had the same job. Um, I just kind of transferred everything I knew out there and uh, was working on Steve's games, on everybody's games. I was building lightwoods and doing, you know, making parts and whatever had to be done, basically, to build a prototype. So I got really good hands-on training on what the right path was or what I thought the right path was, um, you know, for things like shot, shot layout, ball guides. I mean, Steve really knew that stuff really well. His shots are really smooth, some of the smoothest in the industry, no question. Right. And so I consider myself to have been really lucky because I think I learned from the best. Huh. Huh. And I kind of started there. And, you know, uh, basically whatever they told me to do, I did, you know.
1: Now, are you and Steve? Are you guys pretty close?
0: Absolutely, very close. Okay. <laughs> it,
1: and in w- the trans- the transition from California, you know, the Atari kind of the uh, the Atari work—I don't know if you want to call it work ethic or whatever—to the to the Williams Chicago style. Was that a big transition?
0: Oh God, yeah. I mean, I was a, I was pretty much a long-haired hippie, and you know, like the. Well, I won't say what I like to do in those days, but <laughs> I like to have a lot of fun. And coming out here was a big culture shock because this is, you know, this was a, a, it just struck me as a really old place when I got here compared to California. And I would just freak out on how old everything was, you know. Um, and just, you know, torn up roads and snow was a new thing for me. I'd never been in a snowstorm in my life. Um, so, you know, that year, 79, we got probably record snowfall, uh, up to that point, I think. You know, I don't remember exactly, but... Absolutely. Many changes had to be made.
1: Now, how did you get from, you know, basically being a, I don't know, a white wood assembler to actually designing your first game?
0: Um, I call it... uh, I I had a really strong desire to design pinball machines. I thought it was something I could do. I mean, I wanted to do it. Obviously, it was exciting. It was, uh, you know, Williams was... I mean, they were, in those days, they were kicking at, taking names. You had games like Flash, you had Firepower, you had Black Knight. Um, this is when I was doing my sort of prototype assembler apprenticeship. And so right after that happened, you know, Mike Stroll gave me an opportunity to design my first game. So I took him up on it and Thunderball was born. Not the best thing in the world, certainly not my best effort, but um, that was my first you know, I got a shot. Here's a company who gives me a shot at doing pretty much whatever I want. Uh without without putting a lot of weight on me or leaning over my shoulder or telling me what to do. I basically was pretty much free to do what I wanted. Um sometimes that's not a good thing. <laughs> but um <clears throat> Thunderball's a long story. But uh
1: well, what do you mean? They only made ten of them.
0: out of more out of desire than anything.
1: You know? Well, they only made ten thunderballs. Why didn't the game actually get produced?
0: Well, the game had some. I don't know if you've played the game or are familiar with it, but we were we were trying to do some pretty far fetched rule sets. And in those days, you, you pretty much had you know your standard three ball play game. You had you know the extra ball over here. You had this over there. You had. These basic things that were pretty much in every pinball, and I thought it'd really be cool to do something different, maybe implement sort of a wave structure to the game where it was you against the targets, and you know, you would basically stay in the saddle until you lost your lives, Um, much like a video game. So that was the premise, that's kind of how we laid it out, And, and of course, as we all know, it didn't work out well, but it was an interesting concept at the time.
1: Now, how did they, did it not work well on test? Is that what happened?
0: Yeah, it just didn't, it didn't earn, you know, it wasn't, the cash box was not, it was not friendly to us. And we tested about six weeks, if I recall correctly, so we really, we really gave it a good shot. and The body was not coming to life, you know. Right. As they say.
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, then, then, you went to Firepower 2. Tell me about that one.
0: Firepower 2 was, well, that was a, um, obviously a sequel to Firepower. Um, I, uh, I wanted to do something a little bit more conventional at that point. I sort of, you know, after doing that, I kind of felt, well, that's probably not the right way to go. I probably got to try something a little bit more conventional. And, you know, I, I like the idea of a ramp and getting the ball up. I would seen some old Harry Williams. Um, he did a parachute game. You'd probably know this better than I, but he did this. It was one of his earlier parachute games, and I want to say 1940s, 50s, where there was an elevated wire form. There was a pole kicker that would shoot the ball. <clears throat> um, you had to shoot the ball into the hole kicker and then it would kick it up, kind of like free-fall where it would shoot the ball up and over on top of a wire form and then it would, you know, bring the ball back to the flipper. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a ramp do that and shoot a ball into a ramp, fly up over the play field and come back. Now, Xenon had already done it, but not with a wire form. They did it with a plastic tube. So hmm. I thought, you know, that's a good place to start. and I And I like... I at the time Firepower was my all-time favorite game to play. And I loved the rules and I just loved three ball multi ball and you know the the ease of that game was great to me because it had really easy to understand rules yet that game would you would fight like that game to win and you know I think that's the magic. I think that's the magic in every game. You know. So, that was that, that had a lot to do with why Firepower 2 happened.
1: Well, you did pretty well. I mean, you sold 3,400 units in 1983. That's actually a pretty good sales number.
0: Yeah, that, those were tough times. Uh, games were not selling big in those days, as you know. Uh, we were getting hit from all sides with, you know, video game onslaught, and uh, the industry was in bad shape back then. So, yeah, that was a kind of a kind of a gold spot for us, you know.
1: Hmm. hmm. Now, how do you think that the the Firepower name helped your game sales at all, or do you think that had nothing to do with it?
0: I think it had very little to do with it, to be honest. Okay. I think, you know, I think that on a this level, but I think beyond that, nah, I can't really say that anybody really, you know, um, I've never had that said to me where, God, what a great sequel, you know, and typically people don't talk about it much at all. Right, <laughs> right.
1: Hmm. Now, you, you, then you went and did, um Pennant Fever, which was uh, a Williams pitch and bat. Now, how did you get involved with doing, um baseball games for Williams?
0: Again, this is something that I, 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 I seeped out and went after. I, I asked, uh, Steve Kordak if he would have a problem if, uh, if I laid out a baseball game. I was excited about him. I, you know, I played baseball as a kid and, um, I always loved those games and I thought I kind of had a, I guess i kind of had a little nostalgic bug while i was doing that you know when i was designing games i did that a couple of times um but i just i i loved them and i just wanted to make something that would be you know i thought it'd be fun again and it's been a while since people had seen one and um you know we sold quite a few of them games did okay we had the the uh, consecutive home run feature in there which was really fun for people um you know it was something that i just wanted to do you know
1: huh. okay no i mean did that, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but then in round 19, you know, 92-ish, 91-ish, I should say, uh, Slugfest came out, and you were the designer of that game too. Was that, did you get this reputation at Williams as kind of being the baseball guy?
0: I did after I did the second one. <laughs> but, um, again, I, that was inspired by, uh, the desire to, I wanted to build a game around, um, winning baseball cards, you know, that's where that happened. Baseball cards were extremely popular then. My kids were collecting them. I mean, it was a huge thing again. I remember that when I was a kid and I thought, wow, wow, you know, what if the game spit these things out? you got a home run, you got a couple of cards. How cool would that be? So, you know, that kind of inspired that. And again, I went and said, hey, um, I'd like to do another baseball game. What do you think? (laughs) So... Huh. So, um, you know, they went for it, and, uh, that was, of course, under WPC, I believe. That was a whole new right. system, whole new set of rules. We could do all kinds of stuff with it. Um, you know, and did. We had talked about putting a man run unit in there early on, and kind of said, you know what? There's a dot matrix thing happening. That's coming up, because we were prototyping it on a couple other games. I think Steve's Terminator was around the same time. Right. And actually, Slugfest came out before Terminator, I believe. Yes, it did. Right before. And we, Steve was pioneering and working with that display, but we kind of, eh, it was kind of, we just kind of hopped in and grabbed it. It was like a timing thing. They were pretty, the engineers were pretty much done with it. We had it working. And I thought, hey, you know, (laughs) this needs to go in the baseball game. We can have, we can have another game in here. We can do a lot with the video mode thing. I mean, you know, Um, so that was really an issue of timing, but I think, Terminator was slated to be the first game to have that.
1: Right. Hmm. Now, now the the whole
0: repercussions or anything nasty out of that, I think everybody was pretty much agreeable because it wasn't um, a pinball. It was a novelty game.
1: Right. Now, that whole card dispenser thing, you know, then they came out with uh, that Hot Shots game, which was the basketball game that had the card dispenser, too. Were you involved with that at all?
0: No, I was not
1: but they took your car dispenser idea and recycled it into that game
0: yes companies make investments in, in the mechanical engineering and, you know, and a lot of that stuff gets kind of tossed on to the next game that can use it you know um, just as a way because I'll tell you novelty games you're looking at you're looking at much lower sales across the board they they would you know they were seasonal for one thing a baseball game is a very seasonal thing just um, you know, 1500 or so maybe in the first season, and you might come back and build it again. The next season, you might do it again, you know, the following season, but it was always only during the baseball season and toward the middle of summer. And, you know, so when you had the opportunity, you would try to burn up inventory on the next game. So it seemed like a a good thing to do with the basketball game.
1: Now, Slugfest did really well. It seemed that Williams actually made that in in two entirely different runs, maybe based on your seasonal thing.
0: That's correct. Yeah, we did... um, Actually, I think there were, I thought there were three runs. I thought it was, uh, obviously the first year we built it was, well, what did you say, 92?
1: 91, actually it came out in 91.
0: Okay, Thanks. so, up until, I would say, 90, part of, I think in the spring of 93 they built some too. I could be mistaken, but, you know, not big runs. You know, maybe 500 here and, I kind of kept this going. We we had the thing built and designed, so it was not a big deal to fire it back up on the line. You know,
1: hmm. that must have kind of made you feel good, especially since Williams did not like to go back and and re and and change the line again for something in such a short order. And here they did that on your game. Well,
0: the only reason they did that was is there was ample um, ample you know demand for it.
1: Right. Hmm.
0: Otherwise, no, they wouldn't have. I okay. can guarantee you.
1: <laughs> well, the the skip back, the, the go back and uh, back where we were at right after *Pennant Fever*. You did like *Sorcerer* and and *Road Kings*. Tell me about those two games.
0: Uh, *Sorcerer* was uh, that was kind of a transition point for me. Um, I think at the time I was working with. I think the programmer on that game was Ed Sahaki, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Ed and I kind of paired off and, and wanted to do something kind of on a magic, kind of a magic-y kind of theme, but not, you know, we couldn't spend a lot of money in those days. There were budgetary, a lot of budgetary constraints. Um, at one point, the game wasn't going to have speech. I had to fight for that um, with the president, you know, basically get on my knees and beg for speech. They weren't going to do it.
2: Hmm. Uh,
0: too much money, you know, whatnot. So that was a tough time, actually, so that's why there wasn't a whole lot of crazy stuff on the games, you know, at that point in time. Um, so we were under a budget and under a pretty strict uh, schedule, as I recall. We were, I forget who else was there, what other game was in front of us and what was behind us, but there was a, a little bit of a constraint and kind of hurrying it up and getting it out there, and it really didn't get a, uh, it never felt like it got a really fair shake, you know, sales-wise, because it kind of got bumped by the next game. Which we did a lot. We had to do in those days because we had to move the product, you know, and keep the factory going. So when that was a, that was one of the deals, you know, in, at that time. You made money when you could make it, you know. Yeah. Um, but Sorcerer was, you know, we did, I thought, I thought it was a fun game. I enjoyed the top half of that play field a lot. That three bank shot with the kind of weird place flipper. I mean, um, like I have memories of Kodak. That's when I had some good Kodak arguments. <laughs> he and I kind of locked horns on the rules. There were some things I was doing that he didn't particularly care for. I don't remember exactly what, but um he made a, uh, a suggestion to me about some, doing something to clarify the three-bank drop target rules. I, I don't remember what the heck it was. He says, what the hell is, what is this? You have a, I had labeled a lamp with something on the white wood and he, he didn't know what it was or how we were, ch- how it was going to play into the, into the rules and I, I kind of explained it and he's, you know i was getting nowhere with the explanation and finally i just okay steve you win i'm changing it <laughs> so, huh. so you know i think it was the i think we swapped the thing out for an extra ball or something up at the right hand side of the game but i had some other feature there It's been a while um
1: what was kordak kind of a micromanager type guy
0: uh not really on that game for some reason he felt kind of attached to it he, he kind of um I saw a lot more of him at that point. On the other two, I, I saw very little of him. And I hardly ever, you know, we hardly ever talked, or I kind of felt like a, um, kind of like a, an orphan in a way, I guess. I, although I really didn't think I needed a, a parent, you know. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> uh, I think I, there were just some weird things going on between management, upper management, my brother, and things that were going on there that kind of made that uncomfortable for him. Hmm. um i was totally comfortable with it but you know there were it was kind of weird I don't, you know who well, knows why people do the things they do
1: how was it was it strange that your brother was working in the in the same department basically doing the same thing as you and and he you know obviously he was pretty successful at this did this put a lot of pressure on you uh
0: absolutely it'd be a lie to say different it did i was very pressured by it um But I thought of it as good pressure. I never thought of it as negative, horrible. I want out of here. I hate this. It was it was productive for me. I think it made me a much better game designer um, in the end. Because you know, when you're in a when you're when you're kind of like that, you're you want to do a good job at what you're doing. But more importantly, here you're working in a creative field. You're in a very creative area where you know you're the boss. I mean, basically, what you decide ends up on that game. You know, and so there's a great deal of responsibility that you feel toward coming up with just a great product every time. Well, I didn't let that stuff really bother me. I concentrated more on, on trying to do the best I could, you know? Huh. And, but there are times when absolutely it, you felt like, oh shit, man, I, you know, I got to top this guy. I'm his little brother. I can't sit here and not, you know, have a number one game or have a hit game, but you can't have hit games all the time. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Um, Unless you're Steve.
1: <laughs> Steve is
0: very, very good. And, you know, um, there's, no, there's no doubt about that.
1: Now, did you two ever collaborate on games together? You know, you did you give advice to Steve and Steve give advice to you?
0: Occasionally, yes. It was more Steve giving me advice, but, you know, it was good <laughs> advice. It was stuff that he felt. It was not anything other. It was never anything, you know, evil or overpowering. It was always... Well, Steve is a really honest person. I'll tell you that about my brother. He never holds back. He says what he thinks, which I have a lot of respect for him for that. And he he will always tell you the truth and never lie. And that is exactly what he will tell you. <laughs> but um, sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes it's tough to take. The delivery isn't, you know, the way you want to hear it. And, right. You know, there's that going on. And at the end of the day, it most of the time, it was the best idea. It was the right thing to do. It made the game better. That's all that matters.
1: Hmm. Now, was there ever a time that you gave him some advice that you know you kind of you could always you know go back and say, "Hey, I told you so." <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> uh, you know, not re- or not not back then, but I would say recently. You know, we collaborate on his uh, on the stuff he does at Stern. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he'll say, "What do you think about this?" And I'll tell him what I think, and I'll go, oh, I didn't think of that. It's a cool idea." So it's happening now. once in a while you know
1: (laughs) all right now uh now road kings came out right after steve's high speed um what what was the thinking with road kings and how did that game go
0: road kings let's see that started off that's an interesting story that road kings started off as a game called samurai originally and i had been struggling with the theme um I had a couple of themes on that game. I had another one, like a, like a sort of a futuristic city at one time, at one point, and then went to a, a samurai theme, and then um finally settled on Road Kings, just out of the popularity of um the Mad Max movies that were out at the time. I thought that was really cool, and I thought that was something we could, we could pop into this, you know, sort of post-apocalyptic Chicago with a, you know, biker gang cruising up Lake Shore Drive. I mean, we had all the inspiration, and, ideas started just flowing, you know. I um, also were this is also a sideline side note, um, the guy that programmed that game is now my boss at Play Mechanics.
1: Really?
0: <laughs> yeah. George Petro.
1: Huh.
0: Yeah. So um he uh he actually was going to school while he was programming the game. Um, at one point we wanted to start working on I wanted him to start working on lamper teams and at least, you know, put some stuff together and start moving on the play field. So George says, well, why don't you make me a miniature, make me a miniature, like quarter scale, um, you know, piece of wood with some LEDs in it, I'll wire it up and make them work. So we, so what we did is we shrunk down the playfield drawing and then attached it to a piece of quarter inch plywood and drilled a bunch of holes in it wherever the light positions were. And so he basically had all his lamp routines done while he was down in Indiana huh.
2: going
0: to school. So then he brought it up and then he'd work in the summer and, you know. He just, he cranked on the game whenever he could. George was, you know, there's another, there's another success story about desire. When you want to do something bad enough, you can do
1: anything. You know what I mean? Now, did you, did you try and use the same programmer for every one of your games or did you just, no?
0: No, never. Um, it didn't work that way. Basically, you got, you got who was ever available, you know? I mean, you could try to get, you could try to get guys if things were, you know, kind of working out that way. You'd lobby around and talk to guys and, it's your idea whoever you know and sometimes you could get you know somebody to go hey I really want to do that and you know they'd work they would do everything they could to get to that point and get that game but usually it didn't work that way it was more you know whoever was available is who you got hmm. um, at least for me I didn't I didn't really have the option of picking my team you know there were people that could do that but I wasn't one of them not at that point
1: now, with with Road Kings, you said that you know you had these multiple themes. Were were you the one that was picking the themes, or was this dictated to you?
0: Oh no, I was picking the themes. Okay, definitely. Okay.
1: And you and the um, yeah, the Mad Max thing that was a that was a pretty strong uh, a pretty strong theme back then.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. That was that was the that was the shit for us. You know, we thought so. Hmm. We thought that was going to do really well, and in fact, it did do very well in uh, in Germany. Germany was. They loved it. I think we sold 3,000 of those games in Germany alone at that time, which was, you know, was pretty tough to do, you know. Hmm. But the Germans get off on anything with a motorcycle, anything Western, anything, you know. They just love the action-adventure, whatever it is. Um, that stuff works really well over there.
1: So then you did big guns, and, you know, the back box on big guns is, is so tall. Now, what was the, the inspiration behind that?
0: Because we wanted to, I believe we had a couple. There was a couple of things going on. We um, we had a um, we had a uh, feature up in the game that had a um, it was like a little pachinko game.
2: Right.
0: So there was some pretty heavy duty mechanics that had to go into that up there and sit on the inside of the insert panel. So we were a little bit concerned about the room behind it. We also moved the speakers up on top, took them from the bottom and put them up on top just to get. I guess some of it was just to be different, you know. Um did we do that in that game or not? You know what? I don't remember. I don't know if that's true. I can't say that. I think I did that on police force.
1: Now, when you made a, a major design change of the of the cabinet, you know, hardware like that, would did, did management give you a hard time about stuff like that?
0: Um not at that time. you know, I didn't really get in I didn't have too. I don't recall any anything like that really going on. Um Big guns was more designed around, this doesn't happen often, but it was designed around a component or a feature in the game. It was designed around the catapult. We came up with the catapult, and I was looking for a good spot to throw that. How would that work? Well, how would that work in a, you know, what kind of a theme do I need to make that work? So the whole castle thing kind of came to mind. And um, so we started with the castle, and we were looking at more of a medieval theme. Uh, Python and I. And it sort of evolved. Python made the, absolutely, the observation that um, those catapults looked ridiculous. We had to cover them up because the ball would hop into them inadvertently. So we had to put these covered clear covers on the top of them. So rather than just arbitrarily throwing a cover on Python in his, in his awesome style, uh, you know, built cannons. So the castle became a science fiction castle. And there were troops attacking the castle because of the, you know, the old story of good versus evil. There was the uh, evil king and the tower and the, the princess, and you had to rescue the princess. And so it all kind of came around. It was built around the catapults, to be honest,
1: hmm. which actually morphed into guns.
0: Yes, right,
1: right. Because you just you just didn't like how it how the the overall look of the catapults.
0: Well, the problem was again we couldn't we couldn't protect them from balls hopping in over the top because it was a the, the type of mechanism that was um, you had two problems one was you had you had to worry about balls hopping in there and getting caught when they weren't supposed to be in there and you also had to worry about balls getting behind it when it fired because of the enormous uh, power of the flippers and things going on around the around the game you know hmm. um, you had to worry about ball hang ups always hmm. so, That was a nightmare, and would frequently, you know, basically you think, whatever you think about, uh, you know, this is going to be fine, I won't need to worry about it, nine times out of ten, you are always wrong. (laughs) Um, The ball will find a way to get hung up, you know what I mean? Right. So that was kind of a double-edged sword. We really didn't have much of a choice. We had to cover them with something, so, you know, sort of a plastic dome, and then we thought, okay, well, let's make them look nice, let's turn them into guns, you know, makes sense.
1: So these catapults weren't anything like, say, the catapult on Medieval Madness, then?
0: No. No, not at all. This this was a real working catapult. I mean, absolutely. I've used it on several games. I mean, it will fling the ball through the air, three inches above the playfield surface. And make (laughs) the ball haul ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It's just a cool thing, but you had to be really careful about where you used it. It made it really, you know, you were really limited where you could put the thing. And I kind of learned my catapult lesson on on, on big guns. All right. <laughs> Don't put them in the middle of the play field. <laughs> All
1: right, then then you you worked on uh, on Taxi too. Uh, Next, right? Correct. And now was Taxi a collaborative effort with a bunch of guys? It's it's kind of seemed that way. It
0: was. It was pretty much uh, Python and myself. Okay. We uh, pretty much drove the cab on that one. Uh, a lot of Python. Python was. You know, he was nuts. nut. He was just nuts and it was great. I mean, we were, we were making good stuff and the game went together really smooth. The shots worked. Um, you know, the characters, that was, that was a really goofy thing. It was just goofy, you know. It was just about being goofy or just having fun. Um there was no serious, you know, let's make a taxi game, you know. <laughs> um, it, it, it did start off as, you know, as it wound up. It was, it did start as taxi and, you know, was built into this. Goofy ass playground of crazy shit going on.
1: Now, did you have any? um Did you pick help pick any of the characters that were you know in the taxi theme? I
0: think the only character I picked was Dracula, and that uh, maybe maybe the Marilyn character.
1: Now, you guys had the the whole Marilyn thing when when you got uh, in a some sort of issue with the Marilyn. Um, yeah, what, I mean
0: Roger Richmond Agency who owns Marilyn Monroe's estate. Um, sort of caught wind that we were doing this. Um, I don't remember exactly whether or not we, I think what we did was we called them. Somebody, somebody, I forget who, said, you know, have you guys checked this out? Have you guys, like, done any research? You know, and I go, well, it's not really Marilyn Monroe, but if you're calling her Marilyn, you could have a problem. So we found out who owned the estate and sent them the information, and they go, uh, you owe us some money if you're going to keep doing that. And we went, um, okay, well, <clears throat> we're going to change it to Lola. <laughs> so, um, so that's how that occurred. We actually, we fired the first shot across the bow on that, you know.
1: Now, why Lola as a substitute name?
0: Uh, based loosely on the, on her legs, if you look at, if you look at the character on the back glass, mm-hmm. this cracks me up to this guy, it's a little bit, she looks a little manly. Um, so Lola was an old kink song that I knew it was about a, um. Right, right. A guy who hangs out in a bar and he meets this beautiful-looking yeah, transvestite.
1: A, yeah, it's a song about a transvestite, right. Uh,
0: that's kind of what came to mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, did Python do the art for the taxi back class? Yes. Now, did Python do this on purpose, kind of this manly figure?
0: I don't think so. No, I think he intended it to be... He, he liked big women. Python was a fan of Amazon women, you know that's what he would call them, Amazonia. You know that was his thing. He loved big women, so he made her look really big. And then I think in the process of that, she just kind of grew some some mighty big legs, you know. And they're, geez, I mean, if you all you got to do is add some hair, and uh, pretty close, <laughs> pretty close to a man's legs. I always thought, oh, I don't know, and I don't mean that in a in a nasty or condescending way. It's just the way that I saw it, you know. Right. I don't know if other people saw that but that's what I saw. Huh. Oh.
1: So. Now you went to uh, the next game you did it looks like it was police force. Now the police force did that start out as police force or was there another theme?
0: No, um that's a, believe it. We were not as Batman. We uh we were going to go after Batman and we had a complete the game was pretty much I would say at the I don't know the the, the concept was 100% done for it. We had Pretty much everything figured out what, were, where, what was going to be where um, without having a working knowledge of the um, script. We hadn't seen a script. We hadn't had a deal. I knew the movie was coming up, but we didn't know who was going to get it. So we made a play for it and we were not successful in getting the, the theme. Um, Data East got the theme. So we didn't, I didn't get to do that. So we had to kind of change things around a little bit and, um, and Python came up with the police force deal. And, you know, Barry uh, Barry Osborne worked on that game with me. That was a, kind of a collaborative effort.
1: Now, when you did a collaborative effort, was it was that an easier thing to do or a harder thing, or was it one of, like one of those things where there's you know too many cooks ruin the stew? Or how does that work? Well,
0: given the the, the personalities at the time, um, Barry was you know he was he was wanting he was he had some time on his hands, and we needed to get the thing done fairly quickly he had a we had another game behind it coming again, you know push came to shove, so we kind of teamed up just to he was a much faster gun than I was with a pencil he could in those days we were drawing games by hand, and I would come in and you know we would talk about the features and I kind of i guess I could sort of manage that uh, in a way, and you now Barry would draw up everything and make it happen so kind of Python as the as the guy with the inspiration and me as the I would say producer, and Barry, you know, would basically make everything happen and make the shots work and, and all that stuff. So hmm. it was kind of a different, that was a different role for me, you know, no question. Okay. Um, but I forget exactly why the hurry came, but there was, I think, some other game that needed to happen, and you know, we needed to crack the thing out fairly quickly.
1: Now another one that you did that was um, actually a really, I mean, it's a game I really really like is is Diner. Uh, now, who who came up with that theme?
0: Um, uh, actually, that was that was uh, myself and a guy by the name of Mark Springer,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A
0: guy who did Fire and did some other stuff, did some great stuff. Uh, Mark and I worked on that. Uh, we both kind of liked the idea of doing a, you know, a forties fifties era. Uh, sort of Pullman Car Diner. That's kind of where that started. And, and I was pretty much, I was into doing this nostalgic thing at that time, you know. That was really a cool thing for me. I just, I just thought, I was a collector. I enjoyed history. I enjoyed, you know, that era a lot. And I thought, you know, this would look great in people's basements. Anybody that wants to do a game room or this would fit into a restaurant environment or atmosphere, this would, it's a fit, you know. I just thought it would be a fit. And so that's where we started with that. And, the character thing came in there also. Um I had come off Taxi at that point, I believe. Um, and we sort of integrated a lot of that same interaction with the characters that Taxi had. Because it worked so well on Taxi, and I thought, you know, let's do this again, only let's use some more controversial characters this time. Let's use Manuel Noriega, let's use Margaret Thatcher, let's use, um, you know, the, okay, the Mexican guy, the little Pepe guy. Mm-hmm. That's actually Manuel Noriega.
1: <laughs> and how was management's reaction to this? Was there any any of this political incorrectness thing going on?
0: I'll tell you, at that time there was none of that. I mean, we were a little bit worried about Ronald Reagan. We put a roller coaster. That was a little bit. I remember that was a little bit. Ooh, I don't know about that. You know. And, um, but aside from that, no, no one. You know. I mean, everybody was. We were. We didn't. We didn't have licensing. You know. So we needed to like. We all felt like we needed to put a little extra punch in the game somehow, you know, and maybe, maybe this would help pull that off, you know, certainly make it amusing. I mean, um, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of argument from upstairs. Not much at all.
1: And the uh, kind of three-dimensional backlash with the, the characters kind of like on, on spring, so when the game moves, they, they bounce back and forth. Was that your idea? Yes. Originally,
0: well... Budgetary constraints. Originally, those uh, those were going to be on. Uh, they were going to be solenoid operated, so that when you serve the customer, the customer would pop up in the window, and you know, vibrate around or shake around, and while it was doing the little speech call, um, <clears throat> you know, that was going to be that was plant that was going to be an interactive feature of the game. But uh, the budget came and got us again. You know, we couldn't do it. So we spring mounted them and just had them kind of flopping around. Yeah, hmm. it. That, that would have been cool. I think
1: that would have been really cool. Yeah, no, I I think that would have been a really cool idea too. And you kind of you kind of ruined it for me now because now I got a different. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> you
1: asked. <laughed. Yeah. laughs> no, no, it's still like I, I I really like Diner. I think it's a it's, I think it's a really I, I think it's a great game. Certainly one of the better games of that whole System Eleven era. I think it's a great a great effort. So, I mean, and the, you know, I like the the political incorrectness, as sick as that may sound. Right. You know, but... It was we you
0: know, doing stuff like that in those days.
1: Right. You know. Now, what what involvement did you have with Riverboat Gambler?
0: Not much at all, other than the, uh, I did some, Dan Forden, who was doing the sound on that game, uh, he wanted me to sing this little ditty. I was like, "I can't. What are you talking about? You want me to sing? Yeah, we want you to sing the song. Here it is." And he like sang it for me, and he goes, "I want you to picture like Al Jolson, you know, like a like a minstrel, and uh, you're doing this riverboat this little tune about the riverboat gambler, and I'm like, "I don't know, so I did it. I don't know what the hell I drank or, or smoked before I did it, but I did it <laughs>
1: <laughs> And how did you feel that came out?
0: <laughs> I thought it was great. <laughs> play it played out great in the game, you know. I thought it was cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, had you a- ever done any singing before this?
0: I sang, I sang background in a band. Actually, um, I, I noticed uh, I heard Eugene and Steve on your previous podcast. None of them talked about the band that we had. We had a band. We were called Brain Damage. And uh, we would play at, like, parties, you know, mostly people that worked in the industry. A lot, of, a lot of people will remember us who were around in those days, Larry DeMar and several people that were around. Um, but, yeah, we did that for fun, you know, so yeah, I did some background background singing in those days
1: so so Steve played guitar and and you did some singing, and what did Eugene do?
0: Play keyboards and sang <laughs> Eugene is a fantastic keyboard player and a very good composer. Um, he wrote some really wild songs, huh. you know, some great stuff that we still laugh about <laughs> today. A song called "Love Doll," which was um <laughs> uh you know send you the lyrics. How's that? <laughs>
1: Why, are they that racy?
0: <laughs> oh, they're racy. Not too bad. Not too
1: bad. And, w- and when did the band break up?
0: Oh, God, I want to say right before I got married, which was 1983. So, 82 in there, 82, 83.
1: And, and who was drumming?
0: Um, the guy, he was not in the industry. He was a friend of ours, okay. whatever the name of um, uh, we had two drummers. We had a guy by the name of Mike. Uh, I don't remember his last name, but these guys were unrelated to the industry. Hmm. They were they were not involved. Right. Steve and I and Eugene were the only three whack jobs. We used to practice at Williams at one point.
1: And how did that go? <laughs>
0: uh, it was great. We'd do it upstairs in engineering. You know, after everybody would leave, we would like set up our junk and and, and like play in the engineering room, you know. Ah. Those are those were fun days.
1: <laughs> That. Alright, we're going to take a little break of talking with Mark Ritchie, and we'll be right back after this message. Deep in the forests of eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking. And something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. (laughs) Presenting Classic Playfield Reproductions (laughs) Two guys in their basements we've got the passion we've got the gear and we've got the quality doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts classic playfield reproductions playfields backlasses, plastic sets on the web ClassicPlayFields.com. This portion of TopCast is brought to you by Pin Game Journal,
0: covering the world of pinball. Visit them online at
1: www.PinGameJournal.com. All right, we're back with Mark Ritchie of Williams and Capcom Pinball. Okay, well, we talked about uh, Slugfest. Now, um, just a, a couple of, uh, of little questions about that that we didn't really talk about much now you you talked about the running man unit and you felt that uh the dot matrix display kind of superseded the the ability to actually have a running man unit so you mean the running man unit wasn't had really nothing based with money it was just that we can do the same thing with a dot matrix and we just don't need it
0: mm, no i think that it was more about kind of bringing things to speed a little bit um you know there was a lot of talk about the man run unit and the need to put it in the game and I just, I guess at some point we just thought, you know what, it's been done, it's, it's nice, it's cool, but what if we could do something, you know, I mean this was cutting edge technology at the time and then we were all about that. We, we wanted to, you know, what if we put a base runner in there where you can steal bases and have an actual interactive part of the game rather than something you watch, you know, after the fact. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really the thing that, that pushed it forward.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, in the um, the whole development of the dot matrix, you know, the software and the in the graphics to do all that, did that did that hamper you know your uh, you know the, your production timelines or anything to make all that stuff happen?
0: No, actually, it didn't. We were we were pretty far ahead with most of that stuff at the time. A lot of it, like as I said, I think Terminator was um, was being developed around the same time and had. Had gotten a lot of that stuff out of the way, the interface, the, the, um, the way that we were going to talk to it with artwork and that sort of thing. We had figured out what we needed to use on a development level to generate, you know, the animations and whatnot. So a lot of it had been figured out already. So it was pretty much a, a, a step in the saddle thing for me, you know.
1: Hmm. Now, did you guys, you know, like Data East came out with the whole dot matrix thing before you guys. Did you guys have to feel pressure because of that, to, to develop the dot matrix? Uh,
0: <clears throat> that's an interesting question, and, you know, I don't exactly recall if – I can't imagine Data East doing anything before we did in those days. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, 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 I, I, I really don't remember what the situation was, how we felt about that. Um, I'm going to have to take the fifth on that one.
1: Okay. No, I mean when speaking of which I mean did you guys how you know what was your outlook on data east at the at the time I mean did you really feel like they were always like uh you know copying you guys or nipping at your heels or or what
0: oh yeah, well, we knew they were copying us we knew that they were that was going on um, you know I, it was I mean you look at games like uh, secret service um, you know I, I don't need to tell you this stuff because. Everybody knows, you know, that was not that was basically a flip of uh, a game that we uh, we were working on, um, high speed, and you know, um, I think that I think what makes you mad when you're in that position is you feel like you're doing all this work to innovate and really try to do something cool and different, and you know, capture people's imaginations and get them to play and like your games. And then you see other people just kind of step in and grab stuff and just not, you know, really work at doing anything original. Kind of pisses you off, you know? Hmm. So I think, I think there was a, a, we all felt like there were, yeah, there were, somebody was getting too much information at Data East, you know? We don't know how that happened, but yeah, definitely. It was, it was a drag.
1: So you, you feel that there was some sort of internal mole almost going on?
0: I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. I don't know. It was just a very interesting set of, you know, the way things happen, the time frames that they happened in. Um, you know, it, it, it's unfair to know how or why, but it, it's, it's it's what I noticed about the, uh, at, you know, at that time.
1: Hmm. Yeah, because, I, I mean, there. you know, Joe worked at, you know, Joe Camico worked at Williams, so, you know, I'm sure maybe he had some friends there still. Could be, could very well be. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe this is uh, should be off the record, but I've even heard um, that uh, Larry Damar was on like Joe's bowling team, and that there was always kind of like this rumor in the background that Larry was feeding Joe stuff kind of under the table, you know, while he was at, you know, while Larry was obviously at Williams.
0: I'd heard that rumor. I remember that. I can't. I, again, I can't. There's no verification of any of that, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely none.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just one of those industry rumors, but nobody. You know, obviously, nobody ever could prove something like that. You know, but I, I'm just curious. Um, but but anyways, then after uh, Slugfest, you uh, you did Fish Tales, which was you know, frankly, you hit the ball out of the park on Fish I mean that that game. You know, like I'm in Michigan. And, you know, we've got, you know, we're one of those states that's got, we got lakes everywhere. And I swear to God, everybody that's got a house on the lake wants fishtails. I, you know, that game is so popular.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's one of the toughest games to play, too, you know. What do you mean? Well, it's really fast. It's just really, there's a lot of mean shots in that game. There's some nasty roll-downs. There's some mean kick posts. I, I, frankly, I was really surprised that it, it did as well as it did. Um, because it was so tough to stay in the saddle, but people liked it, you know. There was a there was a, the rules were relatively simple. I mean if you could make shots you could do really well. But sometimes you would just uh, I myself to this day I, I struggle to make shots on that game and just I'm like, Why don't you widen this? Why don't you do that, you know? <laughs> hmm. just, just one of those things you go through I guess, but uh, I mean it, it, that game had probably the smoothest development cycle of any I ever worked on. It just went really, really smooth. We had a really good team. Uh, Pat McMahon on art. I had um, Scott Slomiani doing the dots. At that time, that was one of his first games, I believe. Um, so he, a lot of a lot of guys were really, you know, pumping to do great stuff, trying to make their mark in video. And guys like Eugene Gear. He was another guy that was doing dots on that game. Uh, mark Pernacho programmed it just a great team i mean when things go really well you know you you don't forget it and it's just one their game went together smoothly i didn't have a lot of problems with you know everything seemed to meld nicely right out of the gate was a project to work on we just had a blast doing it you know
1: now was the uh the fish on on top of the the back box was he ever designed to actually you know speak like you know like a billy bass no No.
0: no. There was talk about that. We considered it and thought, you know, the the big thing there was, um, you know, in an arcade setting, you can't really, you can't rely on speech or anything audio to to do anything more than just a sort of a sideline, you know, special effect. Um, You can't really do anything with the rules, and I think one of the ideas was that fish was going to tell you what to shoot at, you know what I mean? Important information. Go for the left ramp or whatever. Uh, that was that was the idea I had for it. Um, but we never, we just thought, you know, we're going to waste the audio on that. Let's just make it shake the whole damn game. That would be, that would be exciting. Hmm. So we got this whole, like, vibration thing going on whenever the solenoid would go off. When it was canted up on top of the back box, it created this, like, huge springboard, you know, which nobody knew at the time that was going to happen. But when we felt it, we went, hey, forget the speech. This is great. You know what I mean?
1: Hmm.
0: This this is a much cooler effect, and we're going to get much more bounce for the buck on us.
1: Now, why did that game, if that game was uh, such a uh, you know a tough shot game, why did it go with the slightly shorter uh, lightning flippers opposed to the standard ones?
0: You, you are an educated man. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you why. That was a the game was enjoying extreme popularity in France, of all places. And France wanted lower game times. They wanted us to, uh, they wanted us to make it tougher. And, you know, they were pretty much calling the shots on what we were doing at that point. And, uh, a gentleman by the name of, I can remember this, Dimitri Kikulis, who was our representative, he was a, he was, he worked for a distributor in France, our biggest one. And, uh, D, I think it was DDA Salmon who ran it. I don't remember the name of the, PSD, uh, was the name of the company. So he would come out during, as we were like working on the game in the last, you know, usually in the final three, four weeks of the game before prototype, he'd come out and tell you what he wanted for, first because we'd already been prototyping the game out there. So he had one, and he would come back with all these ideas, and, and he says, we want you to shorten the flippers, we want you to put shorter flippers on it for our market. And we thought, pfft, you know what we're gonna do? Not listen to this guy, he's gonna take 3,000 games out of the gate uh sure we'll put shorter flippers on it for you no problem um so we did that and he actually helped us determine what the length was going to be and you know i was going to move the flippers back and do some other things but it was going to screw up the shot lines too much so that was out of the question um so we ended up we ended up i think geez, i want to say those those were about uh three sixteenths to three eighths of an inch shorter than the standard flipper um i don't remember exactly um but that was, that was a big deal, and we kind of, we had to listen to this guy. I mean, obviously he was, he was big money, you know. Because in the end, it is a business, no matter what. It's a business. You can't lose sight of that.
1: It's really hard for me to fathom, though, anybody in France telling us what to do.
0: <laughs> uh, well, it's still a strong market for Gary, I guess. Still, he does very well over there still, so.
1: Now, why did the U.S. games ship with the shorter flippers, too, though?
0: Uh, that was, I think that was just an inventory decision. That we, we just kind of thought, how bad is it going to be? You know, we didn't, it's hard to know um, how big of a problem that can cause, unless you see it on a couple hundred games. And at the time, you know, I played the game and played it and played it and played it with those short flippers, and I thought things would be fine. You know, I, I had no idea that it was going to come out the way it did. And, you know, it made things a lot more difficult. Um, probably just a question of, of, of myself getting used to something that I probably shouldn't have gotten used to, you know, because you're looking at it every day, you're staring at it, and you think, okay, this is all right, it's not so bad. I can stay in the saddle, I can hit shots. What's the problem? You know what I mean, but what I think is not what everybody else thinks. So I think clearly that was, if I had the, if I had the sense that it was going to be that big of a problem, I would have never let it happen. Mm. Uh, not for the states. i would have we would have found a way to make sure that all united states games got standard flippers you know all right it is a regret because my i'll tell you what my game here in the basement um, has standard flippers
1: on it yeah my my fishtails has standard flippers too yep, yep. yeah yeah now um do you have a do you have a lot of games in your basement
0: no i don't actually i have uh indiana jones and i have fishtails
1: that's about it and speaking of which, Indiana Jones, now that was another one that you just totally hit out of the park. And now Indiana Jones being a wide-body game and being a big, big theme, uh, I mean a big license. Now, how did you get that license? I mean, that's a killer opportunity that that you got to work on that game, right?
0: Totally, totally. It was the best opportunity I ever had, um, thanks to Roger Sharp and some other people who really, who really went out there and made it happen, Doug Watson um, I had a lot of help with that game. There was no question. Um uh, I and again, yeah, you know, I just had some really sharp guys that were doing a lot of the a lot of the implementation and rules work in the background. Doug Watson, who um sort of just took on, you know, not only the art but came up with a lot of the rules and the packaging of the game and the concept of sort of blending all three movies, that was that was all of us, but Doug really made it happen. He came up with the titles and did, just did a lot of Outstanding work on that game. Uh, Brian Eddy was another guy who, you know, that was the first game to implement the new ball trough. Right. Um, that was Brian's baby. Brian kinda took that. He said to me at one point in the development, he says, he says, I really think that we need to redesign this ball trough system. It's a pile of shit. And I'm not gonna make another game with it. And I went, well, okay. You know, how are we gonna fit that into the budget? He goes, well, we should, what we should do is find a way to fit it into all budgets. It shouldn't cost us. It should it should be part of every game made from henceforth. And that was a brilliant idea. And at that time, we weren't thinking that way. And, you know, I certainly wasn't. And so Brian did a lot to to make that happen, did a lot of the engineering work on that, and kind of did it as a sideline project along with the programming of Indiana Jones in tandem, you know. And so a lot of people did a lot of excellent work on that game. So I can't sit here and take credit for it completely. I was the guy running the show, certainly um, you know I, I was the guy who kind of put everything together, but these guys were just doing they were they were doing fantastic things with the rules you know you so they would say to me, can you move this shot can you add this can you add that and I go absolutely not a problem That's a great idea done so you know that's kind of how it went
1: now it is um were there a lot of toys that got deleted from the uh from the final game
0: actually. The only thing that uh, wasn't there in the end that was added in the end was the uh, tilting playfield on the left, the uh, tiltmatic deal. That was a uh, that that happened way later in the game. I had a, um, I had an upper level there, but it was, you know, kind of just a flat plane. It wasn't a whole lot up there. It was like a ball runway, and the ball would bounce around and come down the track. If you hit it hard enough, it would hit the outside track and come back to the wire form. So we had some of what you see now. But uh we came up with the whole stop the ball, drop it on the play field, and then do the whole you know avoid the whole thing, and <clears throat> the tilting play field, I thought was really a cool feature, but that what did we take out? not at one point, I remember we had a um, we had a four engine uh, Pan Am clipper that we were going to put in there, and we were going to run the the motors on the airplane as the ball passed underneath on the wire forms. That was something that we were looking at doing. But uh never uh, just, you know, it was a lot of money and it wasn't that much bang for the buck, so out it came and then uh we set up the uh the idol. Right. That whole under the play field bossy block block sequence and uh, that was just that just worked out fantastic. That was another thing that was just what a cool idea.
1: Yeah, the the thing that kills me on that game is like just the amount of money it seems like it was spent between the idol and the mini playfield and just you know in the in the all the the gold and all the ball all the you know the ball rails and everything it's god it just seemed like that game was so expensive to make
0: uh it was i gotten uh <clears throat> gotten a few more than one argument with neil mccastro over that um which I think subsequently led me to kind of want to get out of there, you know that was my last game for them uh, it was it was kind of it ugly a couple times. I just things were going on there that I just didn't like, you know, but you know the game happened, the game happened great it's I think it's one of my best efforts ever you know hmm. I'm, I'm real proud of that game
1: now, how did you feel about the wide body format? Was that something you got to pick or was that dictated to you?
0: No, I picked that. Um, i I went that route i wanted I wanted to squeeze two more shots you know I wanted two more shots on the out and those were the outside lanes, Um, because I wanted to keep the ramps wide enough where went, although where they're positioned they're not the easiest ramp shots in the, I think I think things all balance out in the end at some point you know um, we ended up getting exactly enough room to pull off the loop shots on the outside and still have the ball popper. Or I'm sorry, the uh the saucer between the ramp and the and the uh and the three bank and the center shot. Um, so we really squeeze a lot of stuff in there and, and that's why that shot's maybe a little bit little tight, I've heard a lot of nights about the tightness of that saucer shot on the left, uh, where the extra Ball is. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it it likes to bounce out of that saucer. What's that? Yeah, you're talking about the mode saucer, right? Correct. Yeah, and the ball doesn't—it just doesn't like to stick in there. It's kind of got a
0: it doesn't like to seat. Yeah, you know.
1: Was that designed on purpose that way, or just kind of how it worked out?
0: No, not at all. No, you'd never do anything like that. Uh, it, 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 I, I'm not exactly why that happened. I think it's, I think our flippers were a little bit a little bit overpowered for some of the closer shots, you know, which is why you got those extreme uh, air balls and bounce backs off the targets. Right, we ended up putting these big shields behind the wire for them so the ball wouldn't fly out at every time right right that, they actually worked pretty well. Hmm. It happens only I mean I've got the game I've got now it still does it you know
1: now was there ever um uh any special like home version ROMs for Indiana Jones that you guys created for your own basements, you know just for your games?
0: No, but I wish we had I wish we had. Um there was I remember when we did the um when we were doing the working on the speech for that game we had John Rice Davies in the studio, Chris Draner and I um and he's going through and he's doing the jackpot sequences hit the jackpot at one point he says, I mean he was just totally playing along with us i mean this was, was the nat- most natural thing in the world he says hit the fucking jackpot <laughs> and I wanted that uh, I wanted those wrongs so bad i, I I held Chris Graner to this day for those ROMs. For him to make me a set of ROMs that would play that back for me, you know. It was just, it was just one of those moments that happened, you know, once every 20 years. Right. <laughs> and, uh, of course I don't have those ROMs today. And if Chris is listening. Chris, can you, can you hook me up, man?
1: <laughs> and how was it working with that license? Was that an easy license to work with or did they require, were they pretty heavy handed?
0: not at all um, actually they were uh, at first they were they were really reluctant to they, what they wanted was young indiana jones series they were pushing that that was about to come out on videotape and be you know, it was a tv series i think at one point uh, not not long before that and of course that flopped and i kind of knew that was gonna flop and i said the other thing i thought was Indiana Jones is Indiana Jones, and he's about his three movies. He's not about young Indiana Jones. Nobody is going to know who that is or, you know, what impact is that going to have? And so we actually argued with them for the three movies against that. Um, And we had, you know, we had maybe 20 minutes' worth of opposition, and they kind of said, you know, that does make more sense. Let us see the layouts. So, you know, a couple days, uh, we got into conversation, and, and Doug was out there with us, and we just kind of gave him a rough draft of the play field and showed him what we wanted to do and how we were going to involve each you know all these cool sequences from each of the movies. We had that pretty much mapped out at that point, point. and then um, they went for it you know they thought this is cool <laughs> so
1: yeah i, I don't think um, i don 't think young Indiana Jones really flopped that wasn 't the problem. The problem was that their star died that was the problem. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that shut that whole series down when that guy died.
0: Yeah. Bummer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Well, I was glad that we got the opportunity to do, you know, the three movies and be able to package all that up together. and I thought that was a really cool thing, you know, because it's, it's just that it, everything just sort of crosses lines with everything else, you know. Right. It's a, it's a very natural uh, course of events for a game.
1: Now, um, as part of the internal testing... Uh, you you know, you guys would would uh, like test a machine inside the building, you know, like in your in your what, your cafeteria or at court at the bottom of the stairs, and you'd also have them, you know, outside. Tell me a little bit about this in you know your your product testing and how you guys did that.
0: Now well, we had a thing, we had a uh, a thing called the Mel Lab, where we would build twelve prototypes. Um, once the game was approved, once we got past. You know, got the program together in the Whitewood phase out of the way, got everything working. We had these, and so had like, you know, they would have the printed artwork on them. It would be like pretty much complete. It would be your last um, sort of go at making any changes you wanted to make. And at the same time, we would, you know, pop one of them out into the cafeteria. As soon as we got one built, we would put it out there primarily so people could kick it around and play it, but also to see what was going to go wrong immediately you're still at a phase where you can make corrections and make changes relatively easily. Um, so we did a lot of that early on, we'd build the game up and then, you know, the first one done would go out in the as you say, down by the stairs or in the cafeteria. And people would just beat on them, you know, employees. And, and you get comments from other designers, you know, and people would you know, everybody wants to check out your game, so you got more information than you wanted sometimes. But you know, it was <laughs> helpful. <laughs> um, so that would last maybe, we would do that maybe, you know, uh, one of those would stay there anywhere from three weeks to uh, three months, you know, depending on what the demand for the game was. Uh, but we would try to keep one or two around just so we could, you know, uh, you would have manufacturing problems. You'd have things pop up that you have absolutely no idea about until you make, like I said before, you run 100 and 150 of them. You don't know where your problems are going to be, specifically with every game. So, <clears throat> it takes that long sometimes to know, you know, what you need to, what you need to take care of. And so, we would keep these games around so that we could go back and refer to them and, you know, find the problem and then fix the problem on that game and then we would implement a change, um, to the line and correct everything on the line.
1: Hmm.
0: So, had a couple of uses, you know.
1: Right. Right. Now, what, I mean, what was the, um, you know, you, uh, you left Williams and you went to Capcom. How did that whole transition occur? And, and, I mean, you know, were the guys at Williams, were they pretty mad at you or were they supportive or, you know, how did that whole thing, uh, you know, transpire? Um,
0: uh, well, it started a guy by the name of uh, Renee Lopez who was working for, company called romstar at the time which was i had no idea about this at the time but romstar was actually um funded by capcom and renee says you know i'd like to come over here and help us you know we want to make pinballs Uh, i said you're kidding me and this you know this we had talked about this a couple of times and he came back in 93 and said i'm dead serious we have the capital we're going to get started we want you to help us with it you know uh, is this something you'd want to do and i thought absolutely, this is something I want to do. Uh, it was a tremendous opportunity for me to grow um, in areas that probably, uh, you know, I would probably never be able to, um, I would never have those opportunities at Williams at that time. So this was a different opportunity uh, with something that I was really familiar with, you know. So I hired on there as a director of engineering and actually came in and, you know, sort of helped them set up Getting all the things they would need to produce and manufacture pinball machines, develop from a development standpoint first, obviously, and then you know was involved with pretty much every piece of it all the way through. Um, why did I leave Williams? I, you know, it, it comes a point in time in your life when you just you just think about yourself maybe a little more than, than other people do, and you just want better for yourself. And I just thought, you know, maybe it's time I do this. I, you know, just make a change. You know, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't getting anywhere and not having success. On the contrary, I just built two of the best games of my career. You know, um, so it wasn't about that. That you know, the management at Williams was a little heavy-handed. I didn't get along real well with Neil Castro. I didn't like his style, so I kind of took that personally. I, I I wanted out of there. You know, mainly to get away from that. But so there was a little bit of a little bit of angst in just wanting to you know, jump over to another company and kick their ass, because that's exciting, you know, no question about it.
1: How did they, uh when you left, how did Williams take that?
0: They were mad. They were terribly mad. They, um, you know, we had all signed these one-year non-disclosure, non-compete clauses, so I signed one, too, and what that said basically was that you could not design or be involved with on the level you were involved at Williams, as I understood it, you know, you couldn't you couldn't do any of that for a year after you left. So I honored that, and I took a different job. I was a game designer at Williams at Capcom when I was director of engineering. So it was a step up. It was an increase in salary. It was a bunch of things. Um, but it was not pinball design. You know, I honored pretty much honored the contract there. Um, contrary to Williams' belief, they sued me. Um, we had a three-year battle over that. Um, and basically it didn't end until about 1996. You know?
1: Hmm. And what was the outcome?
0: Um it was a, it came to a push in the end. They just basically just dropped they dropped their push because the company, Capcom, kinda of went under, you know. That was the end of it.
1: There was no longer
0: a threat, so there was no longer a need to continue with these lawsuits.
1: So the end of Capcom is really what brought the end of the lawsuits.
0: I think so, yeah, because I was still being, you know, harassed and sued and bothered by this. Pretty much right to the end, as I recall.
1: Hmm. Were you pretty bitter about this?
0: I was real bitter. I was then you know, and the, yeah, back then I was very bitter. I didn't want to talk about it. I was—I went through a tremendous period of bitterness after that. Um, I'm not proud of that, but you know, it happened.
1: Hmm. Now, was uh, at the time um, Williams was trying to sue Capcom. Over a lot of other pinball related issues, too, not related to you, but just like general pinball stuff, right right, right,
0: hmm. I think it was more about harassment than anything. I think that I think internally that Williams was having its share of problems too. Um, I wasn't there for that. I can't really speak to that, but I know that from people that were there that told me you know subsequently that, hey, you know, that place was up for grabs, there was management issues, everybody was going in 15 directions, it was crazy, um, you know, and you could kind of see it in the games. The games were not as strong, um, I would say, from 94 out to, oh, well, until you had stuff like Attack from Mars, you know, those games were just kind of, they were kind of iffy, they weren't, they certainly weren't their best work, not in my opinion, hmm. So we kind of knew that something was up over there, you know, and... You know, I don't know about this whole magic versus you know theater magic and all that stuff that was going on. I mean, there was a lot of talk about that. You know, you could say that, I guess, if you wanted to. Um,
1: you mean that Williams kind of found got got wind that you guys were doing a magic game and came out with their own magic game?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can you can say that if you want. I, I, I've never been, you know, I've never felt like they were trying to steal what we were doing. But I I, I do think that we definitely, you know. We put a little we put a little scare in the, into them over there because here was a company that was doing all new stuff with their hardware and doing really cool shit for the operator. you know our games were well built they were they may not have been that much fun out of the gate you know i mean magic was a pretty cool game i thought um
1: magic's a great game
0: you know we there was some stuff going on in there that were well, these were innovations that no one had seen for pinball and Williams never did any stuff like this we had We had short circuit protection in there. We had the the light bulb. You know, basically, you would blow a light bulb, and the game would tell you exactly where the light bulb was blown.
1: Right, right. There was no general. There was no general illumination. Everything was computer controlled when it come to the lights.
0: Right. That's that's correct. Everything was under processor control. Yep.
1: No. No. Capcom did a, a great job. I mean, they made they had some little things that I didn't like, like you know, like the 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 wiring going to the switches under the playfield. field. I think it was too thin of gauge of wire and the and the surface mount on that switchboard in the back box. But those are pretty and, and maybe the size of the capacitors on the power supply. But you know, in the big picture those were pretty small issues.
0: Yeah, they were. They really were. Um we you know, I think I think that um games like Magic, Big Bang Ball. Um, you know, really showed that we had some we had some design prowess I mean we had we were making some good stuff you know I thought it was as good or better than anything else out there at the time and there was no reason that we couldn't compete with everybody else you know? um and the you know I think the big the big sort of stake in the heart was was the end of pinball it was the end of pinball as a lot of people knew it um, you know premier technology was out there then you had you had um, Sega pinball you had who else did you have help me out here? You had Gally, you had Williams. Um, everybody was pretty much cramming stuff into the market, so you know there wasn't a whole lot of room. At some point, it's going to come to an end. When you have guys that are when you're your points of, at your point of distribution that are stacking up 50, 60 pinball machines, and can't sell them. You got a problem. You got a big problem.
1: You know. Hmm. Now, was there anything that you felt that you could have personally done? to help save Capcom from this you know, from its its doom?
0: No, I don't. I don't think I had that kind of control. I think um I think there was a lot of stuff going on in the background that maybe we didn't weren't privy to. We didn't have a lot of information about what what the what the Japanese intentions were. Um it was very vague. It was always vague to me. Um that side of it was just kind of you know, really not talked about. You'd get stuff secondhand. There would be a, um, be, there was a lieutenant that worked in the office. I shouldn't call him a lieutenant. He was a very nice guy. Um But he was, he reported directly to Japan. And he would tell us secondhand, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And they want this and that. And there would be no discussion about it. And we, would, we You know, all the, the command would come down from Asia. And basically we would have to fall in line, you know. And they just decided one day that that's the end of it. Hmm. Shut it down.
1: Now, was how did you fe-
0: discussion? You know,
1: how did you feel about the, um, you know, the decision to put out Flipper Football versus Big Bang Bar?
0: Um, no, not very really good. I never really thought that Flipper Football was that great of a game, to be honest. You know, I, um, I felt it had, it needed some more work. It was an interesting idea. Uh you know, the soccer thing was kind of a, was something that Python kind of really believed in, it was, he was way into it, and thought it was the, absolutely the right way to go, um, you know, and I just kind of backed off of it, and at that point, I was working on my own game, and, you know, my year had passed, so I was back into game design, in fact, I was heading up game design, and, um, you know, I was working on my game, so I kind of, really didn't have i didn't want to fight with those guys they felt like i was fighting with them um and some extent i was but i didn't have the i guess i didn't have the backing of the company so to speak you know to really make that right or to have those guys make it right and at that time they believed in it and you know it was just kind of a i don't know how to describe it it was an uncomfortable time i'll put it that way
1: Hmm. now did you ever see the ziggy binging project I did. What'd you think? Not much. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> uh,
0: I thought, you know, I thought it was kind of hard-edged, and uh, I thought, you know, it's one thing to be you want to be controversial. That's great. That's cool. Uh, I just thought it was just kind of kind of tacky, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I it's difficult to to crack on another person's idea. You know, I don't. I don't relish that. You need to be clean about it, you know. I just—I couldn't see that thing going anywhere, frankly.
1: Um, what was the Japanese reaction to that game?
0: I'm um, not good, not good at all. I, I recall uh, we showed it to President uh, Tujimoto, and he kind of walked into the room, we looked at it, and saw what was going on. Did an about face and walked out of the room. And about three weeks later. Um myself, python, some other people got called out to Japan, and we went, I, went, I should have known what was coming at the time, but we they flew us out there and uh <laughs> we were brought out to a really nice french restaurant i mean no expense spared best wine, best champagne, absolutely the greatest meal i've ever eaten um and basically it was uh sayonara, suckers <laughs> huh. see ya, we're done wow.
1: Now, how far along was Kingpin, the game you were designing, at this point in time?
0: Uh, at that point, we were, I would say 75, uh, easily at the 80% mark. We were testing. Playfield was pretty much done. All the artwork was done. I had temples built. Um, had about six of them out on test. Well, we had, we had two rule sets for that game. We had a, uh, one set of rules that would basically it was a time play sort of game you were playing against the clock when the clock ran out your ball was done. Uh, however, if you shot and hit the blue there were blue targets and stuff on the play field you could hit those targets you keep yourself alive and add time to the clock. So we kind of worked it on that premise. The rules were the same where you had to do all these little you know work your way up the ladder as a gangster and that whole thing um, but we were but it was not a three ball game so we tested that. Didn't do very well. Obviously, people weren't used to that. It just felt like you were getting, you know, kind of ripped off. Um, nobody liked it, um, so we went back to we put the game in a three-ball version after that. Um, and so the game could be set up either way. Basically, you go through the you go into the coin door and change the settings, and you can have the rule set at a three-ball or time play. Hmm. So. We we were trying things. We were trying to get the income up. You know, we thought that um, this is this is something we should try again. You know, well, not everything you do is the right thing. You know, um, just didn't work out. Worked out much better as a standard three ball game. Um, Kingpin actually started off started life as actually it was called Casino. It was a gambling piece. A gambling theme. Um, so we kind of transitioned after several iterations and just not being able to work the rules and get the thing to where we all were happy with it. We kind of dumped it and went out to the gang. You know, we
1: Now, how far do do you, do you consider the software done in its in its last iteration?
0: Uh, you're never done. You know, there's always something you want to do. Um, you know, there's, there were probably several things I would change, you know. Um, unfortunately, we never got the opportunity. You know, the switch was kind of shit. But I was two months away from producing that game. Yeah, things have been different.
1: Hmm. Now, how do you feel about Gene Cunningham possibly re- reproducing Kingpin? I think
0: that's great, you know.
1: Has he talked to you about it?
0: No. No? I don't know. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't talked to him about it,
1: to be honest. Now, do you have a kingpin? No, I do not. So Gene never talked to you about that, but, I mean, you just kind of heard about it through the rumor mill?
0: Uh, you know, he tried to make contact with me, but it was, you know, he was looking for, I think he was looking for artwork or something. I, I don't have anything for kingpin, you know. Um, so, you know, I don't know how I can help him. Mm -hmm. Um, he did call me once right after, right after I left Capcom and was talking to me about it. That had to be 1997. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I wasn't in the mood. I didn't want, I don't want to, I didn't want to do anything. You know, I was still in my bitter phase, you know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're out of your bitter phase. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) now what was there any did you have any kind of involvement with the james bond game
0: you know what i recall yeah wood pemberton was going to wanted to do a james bond game i think when he was with us
1: but you didn't have any involvement with that
0: no i didn't It was it was it was in a prototype stage you know um i really no i don't recall much at all Hmm. i recall more about uh you know um Rob Morrison's game, uh, Big Bang, right. I remember a lot having a lot of opinion on that, but not really. You know, I didn't do any design work on the game. I mean, Rob was pretty much a one-man show on that thing.
1: How did now? How did you feel? Big Bang Bar came out
0: excellent. It was, I think it was one of the best efforts um, I've ever seen. You know, for here's a guy who has never designed a game in his life. You know, and just from being a pretty good listener and, you know, having a knack for,
2: uh, he was a decent leader, you know, he
0: got things done. Um did a good job. It was a great game.
1: Now, of all the, you know, the the, the pinball games that you either worked with or haven't worked with, what, what would you consider your top three favorite pinball games?
0: Of all time? Yeah. Well, Indiana Jones is in there for sure. Um, Terminator 2. And I'd have to say, high speed.
1: I can't help but notice that all three of those games, uh, were, uh, Richie designs.
0: Yeah, I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, you know, I'll tell you what, it's tough because having not, having seen and played Medieval Madness a lot and not really having played it as long as those other games and not been been able to because they're just not around, you mm-hmm. know, um, that's a great game, too, and that deserves, certainly, that deserves to be in there. Right. So why don't you give me four? How's that?
1: That's <laughs> fine with me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> give me four.
1: So now what, what about your favorite uh, play field toy or mechanism that you design? What what would that be?
0: That would be the, probably the fishing reel on uh, fishtails.
1: You mean where you take the shot? And, a, and a, a vertical up kicker then brings it across the play field and into that rotating reel and then catapults it around the play field
0: yep, that whole little course of events I think is one of my favorite things. It's just so you know Rube Goldberg mechanical it's just
1: cool, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that actually is really cool i I love the way it loads it for multi ball that's what I really think is cool, yeah, 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 all right. is there anything else that you you know you you would like to add? Uh, you know,
0: not really, um, you know, I uh, just, I really enjoyed talking to you, you had some good questions, you know, it's, it was a fun time, fun time with my wife, I thoroughly enjoyed doing it, uh, you know, like to do it again today, never know.
1: Have you, have you talked to Stern at all about doing any pitball design?
0: Often aren't, you know, over the years we've talked, I don't know if I'm ready to, I'm having a good time where I'm at right now, so, you know, I'm enjoying working with my old buddies, and. You know, kind of kinda of like old old home week again, you know. Uh
1: yeah, you're at Eugene Jarvis's place at Raw Thrills, right?
0: Correct, correct. Yeah. Also with George Pietro, who runs uh the subsidiary company, uh, Play Mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our our flagship game right now is Big Buck Hunter Pro and uh it's well it's it's doing great. Couldn't ask for a better game. Couldn't ask for a better group of guys to work with.
1: Well, no, I've played the original Big Buck, and I thought that was a great game.
0: Oh, you got to play Pro. That's, I mean, you got to forget about that other one. This is, this is the shit here. You got to play it.
1: <laughs> and and it's, it has good earnings.
0: Oh, absolutely! It's doing fantastic. Hmm.
1: Well, cool. Well, thank you, Mark. I really do appreciate the time.
0: No problem. My pleasure.
1: All right, you take care and have a good night. All uh, right, you too. Bye. 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 I'd really like to thank Mark Ritchie for coming on TopCast tonight and uh, talking to us about his experiences with Atari, Williams, and Capcom Pinball. It was really interesting. It was great having Mark on the show tonight. It really was a pleasure. I really do appreciate his time, and I hope you all come back and listen to us again here on TopCast.